Now, if you would please stand. I'll read our primary text first, which is 1 Thessalonians 4 from verse 13, and then I'm going to flip back a few pages to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18. So this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage, encourage one another with these words. Now back a few pages to Philippians in chapter 1. And I'll read from the last couple of words of verse 18. Philippians 1, last few words of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage... Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Thank you for honoring God's word. You may be seated. So, what happens when we die? Where do you go when you die? See, that question, I, I think people might think it's a religious question, but if you really say it's not a religious question at all, it's, it's a human question that each one of us, uh, we know what our future is in that regard. We say, well, we know we're going to die, but it's not going to be today. Nevertheless, what happens when we die really ought to be a question that every, every person wants to know, you want to know the answer. I think many in our time, those that we'll see this week in our places of work, at the supermarket, wherever it is, if you have, you know, theoretically say, well, what do you think happens when you die? A number of them would say nothing. They would say oblivion, that they're materialists. You see, if there's no immaterial part of a person, you know, it's just stuff then what happens when you die is a bit like it was, well, a lot like it was before you were born. Say, so nobody here, does anybody remember what it's like before you're born? No, so when the brain activity stops, there's nothing. Now, that popular and consistent materialistic view, what I would submit to you is, it is a, it is a guess. It, it is a wish. It is a one view that people come up with is, well, I'm counting on there being nothing. It's oblivion. Others take an amalgamation, a kind of eclectic hodgepodge of views, some of them from different voices that are around now, others I almost get, a, it's kind of a, a cumulative weight of medieval, uh, you know, medieval um, 
mystery. Uh, so what happens then? You ask them, well, what do you think happens when you die? Where do you go? And you get some version of the afterlife, but what you'll find is that every, every one of those versions, the person designs the afterlife as they'd like it to be. <laughs> I'd really like to think of the afterlife as being a bit like this or a bit like this. And you'll find whatever that person likes, well, that's what the afterlife's going to be. Again, uh, listening to other human voices, just a guess. Others, you say, I don't think this is an answerable question. It's just one of those, you know, you kind of collapse into a nihilism. Say, well, is it, we shouldn't waste time asking what happens when we die because it's just an impossible thing to know. What I'm driving at is what kind of answer what would we need to be true to answer this question? What happens when we die? It's as if one thing that would really help us is if there was someone who died, who was dead, and who was raised and then could speak authoritatively on the topic. You say, that would be really helpful. Does anyone know anybody like that? You know somebody who's died and was raised who speaks about these things. We say, well, yeah, you know, Jesus died, was dead three days in the creed, and was raised and speaks about these things. You could then press it a bit further and say, well, does the person who claimed these things speak authoritatively about them? Or should I say, do, do they, are, are they a crank? A lot of people have different visions of different things. You know, is it, is it just Joe Schmo talking about this stuff or claiming a near-death experience? You say, well, no, you look at Jesus, his perfect record, how he spoke about it with authority, how the church has been grounded on his word. And so what I submit to you today, wherever you're at on this question, one of the big questions is, one, we should be interested in it, what's behind the veil, because we're all going to go there. What happens when we die? What's going to be there? And we do have a source that breaks the kind of, what shall we say, that breaks through the clutter, say, well, there is one who claims and has done so authoritatively to speak about this, and we should listen to his voice. As I prepared this, I was reminded of an epitaph that's in New England on many gravestones. Maybe you've heard it. Remember me as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be, prepare for death and follow me. So you ever came up with that little couplet, those few couplets said they knew. So you must be prepared. Prepare for death, because one day I used to be like you walking around. One day you're going to be like me. Think about it. Somebody years later added, one more line to it. I won't be content until I know which way you went. Uh, so a lot of truth in that too. So would you want to know? Is it an important question? Not a religious question. A human question. Where are we going when we, get, when we die? What's over there? Who can speak to it? Now, sadly, like other areas, the church... The church has really dampened talk on this whole thing. Matters of end times, matters on death. You know, death doesn't sell well. I mean, an, an unhealthy preoccupation with death is not a good thing. We do well to think of it and be prepared. But if you're fixated on death, we'd say, well, that's not a good thing. So what the church has done, some churches, not the church, capital C at large, but some churches have really said, you know, this whole business about, you know, heaven and hell and God being a just judge and history moving towards an end, this doesn't sell well. We need to talk a lot more about God's love and not so much about that. And they've kind of, you know, pushed it aside, dampened it. What's interesting about that is that when the church fails to teach on central 
teachings of God's word, like what happens when you die and that history is moving towards an end, when we say, well, you know what? We're not going to talk about it. Do you see what happens? It's not as if everybody stops talking about it, but actually that vacuum is filled by all kinds of crazy ideas. I am not the definitive authority in the congregation on this, but I do know others who know a lot, a lot more than I do, but say something like the fascination of people a little bit younger than I am with a zombie apocalypse, that there's going to be a mass wipeout of the human race and some other species is going to rise up. You say, well, you see what's happened there. The church says we're not going to talk about the end. We're not going to talk about judgment or history moving in a direction. So all kinds of crazy ideas crop up and it's all over. Uh, shows and video games matters of apocalypse. It's as if people know they're longing for something, so it will be filled. Others on this, you say, well, it, you know, a bit far-fetched to be talking about the end. I mean, you know, we're enlightened people and making good progress here. If you think about it, say, is this scenario that far-fetched? Vladimir Putin pulls the trigger on a nuclear bomb to hit Ukraine. NATO responds in kind with a nuclear missile into Russia, and then Russia responds in kind with nuclear missiles to the West. Say, to me, that's a fairly plausible scenario. It's not like, well, that would never happen. I mean, you're like, well, you know, you, you have a few guys with their, you know, the, the wrong people with the wrong, the, the wrong trigger. The point is, is that we're closer now to mass death than the history of humanity has ever been. You know, 500 years ago, you've got feudal lords, and you know, you say, well, you've got this group of guys charging across the field, and this group of guys with their pitchforks. You know, say, well, it's not a good picture, a little ugly. But now, say, we're 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 closer than we ever have to be in a kind of a large-scale decimation of what we know, the, the world as it is. So the point I'm trying to make is that the Christian movement, some pockets of the Christian movement have said, let's not talk about heaven and hell and judgment in the end and what's going to happen when we die, thinking that we're going to become more relevant and less weird to the culture. And what in fact happens is the culture then, sensing the need to fill this universal question, will fill that gap with a bunch of hooey. So what we need is to recapture the, the, the biblical approach. Secondly, I think we avoid it because of extremists. There are those who predict the end times and, you know, give us a bad name for it. And we say, well, you know, let's just not go there because there have been a lot of bad actors. There have, but just because there are people who have bad ideas on this doesn't mean we should entertain good and right ideas on this. So we don't want to avoid it to be lumped in with extremists. We don't need to go there. We can be more nuanced and, and as I said, more biblical. Thirdly, some of us avoid it because it's complicated or seemingly complicated. You read Revelation, you're like, oh my goodness, the end, like, what is, you know, what's going on here? I, I can't possibly understand. No. Say, Bible's very clear. I hope today, say, actually, pretty plain. What Jesus says about it next week, how we prepare for it. So, Bible speaks clearly. There's a perspicuity of Scripture, fancy name that it's clear. You probably, sixth grade education, everybody can understand the Bible. Jesus speaks to it History's moving towards a goal. Now, why does this matter, history moving towards a goal? When we have a goal in mind, when we know the goal, it orders our steps now. So you think, well, the future, how it's going to end, what does this have to be do with me now? Well, well much and in every way. Say anything that you want to do in life, you say, this is, where I want to, this is what I want to be, then you start taking steps towards that now. So as we, as you know, Christ followers, we know how history is going to end, then it's going to order our lives now, 
so that we might live appropriate to that end. So history is moving towards a goal. And here again, think about how people use words. You know, I've been, like, longer I've been about, just listen to how people, do you think non-believers sense that history is moving towards a goal? So think of how many of our social prophets will say something like this. We've gotta be on the right side of history. Have you heard that? We gotta get this issue right so we can be on the right side. Well, what do they mean? They, they seem to sense that history is moving in a goal that one day there's going to be a judgment, that there's a right and a wrong side. You say, could it be that that is built in to what it means to be human? I think so. So that to say, let's look at what God's word says. Let's open it up plainly and see how it's an encouragement to our church and our ministry. So firstly, 1 Thessalonians chapter four, main point, key point, Jesus will come again visibly and authoritatively. Jesus is coming again visibly and authoritatively. You see, the question that has prompted this, uh, the Thessalonians clearly, through Timothy, have raised the question. It went something like this. Well, Paul came in, he preached the gospel for three weeks, some people were converted, and in Paul's preaching, as God would work on their hearts and do this wonderful thing of converting sinners in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, that part of his preaching was that Jesus will come again to consummate all things. He will restore creation. Jesus is coming again. It must have been a fairly consistent theme in Paul's preaching how do we know that? Because the Thessalonians have written, they've said, well, some of our brothers and sisters have died. Since Paul left, they've died. So their question is, have they missed out on this great truth of Jesus coming again? Is Jesus, is, Jesus is coming again? Does it have any of, uh, anything to do with those who are already dead? That question has prompted it, and we get the response. Now, just how important this was, if you have a physical, today would Every day is a good day to have a physical Bible, but just bear with me if you do, okay? Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with the truth of Jesus coming again. It was clearly a light motif as Paul, you know, picked up his, you know, quiver and rolled out the papyrus. You know, he's clearly saying, this is so important for me to talk about, to, to make it clear once again. So chapter 1 and verse 10, or start from 9. The Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. You see that? There's a Jesus will come again. They're, they're waiting for him to come down. The end of, flip over a page, end of chapter two. For what is our hope or joy or crown of blessing before our Lord Jesus at his coming? So there it is again, the, the coming. End of chapter three, take a look at verse 13 that we, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We just read chapter four, right? The coming of the Lord in verse 15. And how does the letter end? That he's able to sanctify us, spirit and soul and body, that we might be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So clearly you say, Paul's saying, we gotta get this right. This is not a peripheral matter but it is central to what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is going to come visibly, and it has something to communicate to us now. Now, what this does communicate to us now is that Jesus' coming again had a lot of motivating power in the first century. It was something that really was to say, well, how you behave as a church is always going to be in reference to the horizon. I mean, I don't, I don't sail much, but you say that's very important. The, the way you're, you're running your boat depends on, on that, that horizon. And so it is that he's keeping this before them because it's informing the church now. And what I fear is we have lost 
we have lost the motivating power of Jesus' coming again. Why have we lost Jesus' coming again as a motivation for our church? I think two obstacles. Think about these this week. Obstacle one, we think Jesus is just taking too long. He's waited 2,000 years to come again. Even the Thessalonians thought he was coming in a couple of months, evidently, or at least a couple of years. You read 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, and Peter's saying that there are those who are coming at the Christian movement, and one of their accusations is that you talk about Jesus coming again, and where's he been? All these things are happening. He's not coming again. All throughout the church, say, is Jesus coming again? A couple of thoughts on this, if you think that just been so long, is he really coming again? One is, we have to remember the vantage point of God. Say, we have no concept of what it would mean to be eternal, do we? To think of God being outside time, eternity past, everlasting into the future. And when you, you take that view, say, here's God outside of history, and he's working this great tapestry together, it is true, as God's word says, that 2,000 years would be like the blink of an eye that it would be no time at all from an eternal vantage point. It's a, it's a long time if you live 70 or 80 years, you know, or, or less or whatever. Say eternity or, you know, 2,000 years is a long time. But if you're looking at it from an eternity, right, time is an imposition of God. Tom, ta, God made time and matter, so he's outside of it. Then actually, 2,000 years is not long. But here's an, a further pastoral point. Is God's kindness, his provoking us, or is God's kindness, or is God's waiting so long a kindness to us? Is, is it a sign of his patience? Maybe you're here today. You grew up in the church. You don't believe any of this stuff that the Bible talks about. Uh, you're here because somebody brought you along. You're passing through town or whatever. And you're, you're saying, well, you know, that Jesus isn't coming back. I mean, it's been 2,000 years. He's not coming back. And really, that's been a point of ridicule for you to the church until it might dawn on you to say, well, wait a second. Jesus' waiting has given me another chance to hear the good news of what he did on the cross for me. So God's waiting is giving us an exceedingly long period of time from human standards. Say, wow, 2,000 years with the gift of the Bible, the gift of the church, and we still have so many that can't get it right. God in his kindness has waited 2,000 years so that more say, come to Jesus, <laughs> repent of your sins. Come today, don't linger. God in his kindness. So God is not waiting too long. Rather, in his mercy, he has given all of us an opportunity to grow deeper in our faith and those who don't know Jesus to come to him at this very moment. Obstacle number two. We have very comfortable lives. Think of the Thessalonians. Beleaguered group. Made fun of everybody. By everybody. Probably everything we can detect. You know, you know they're, they're poor. It's a little little group of people and say everybody's mocking them. You say, here's the great truth. Jesus is coming again to make all things right. And there is a right side of history and it's being with him. You say, when you're suffering, Jesus is coming again is a great prospect and a motivating power. If, however, our biggest concern is Friday night, you're at the cabin club and they don't have the right special for you. You know, and you're a little grumpy about that. Could it be that the affluence of our congregation, your pastor included, has dampened 
the motivating power of Jesus coming again to make all things right. If my life's pretty good, and I'm fulfilled in all these ways, and I've got access to technology, and I'm not burdened, and I don't have chronic pain, you know, life's pretty good. Well, would Jesus come again? You know, what? how, how different is it going to be? Because i got a lot of good stuff going You get the point. God and his kindness has been very good to us. Let's not allow that to occlude the motivating power that he's coming again, and we want to be doing the work of the king when he comes, right? So let's recapture the motivating power to be on mission now, to be about making disciples, to be really about following Jesus, that we want committed followers of Jesus. That's what the, follow, that's what the Father wants. So let's not let those things cloud it out. A couple of other things here. Take a look again at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. You see, I love it. What's all that imagery kind of stacked up on each other? So here's the point. Jesus will come with authority, and nobody's going to miss it. It'll be a big event. And you notice how the dead are raised? You've got to love it. The, the voice of Jesus, the cry of command. One little word from Jesus, right? Say we tremble and say all these forces, you know, we're bounced around on the wind and the waves. Say, don't be afraid. One word from Jesus. Well, dead man, awake. He'll come. Nobody will miss it. It's the definitive point in history. It's moving in a direction. The authority of Jesus no competition. It's not as if, well, two sides are going to duke it out at this, you know, here comes Jesus again, and there's going to be a big kind of, you know, Tolkien, uh, you know, battle of good. Nope. One little word from Jesus. And that's how it's going to end, the authority of him. So a word on 17. You say, what, you know, this idea of the rapture. Maybe you've heard of the rapture. Where does that come from? Verse 17, then we are alive, we are left, we'll be caught up together with him. That in the Latin translation of the Bible, the verb caught up is rapio, so that's where you get the rapture. And some people see this verse, you say, well, this is just a little bit weird. I mean, what, what are we going to all be floating around in the, in, the, in the air together? I can't even, you know, picture this. I was greatly helped on this uh, many years ago now, reading comparative literature on the, the entry of a king into his domain. So the ancient world would have kings come visit different cities in their domain. And what would happen is they heard the king was coming, that the subjects of the king would file out to meet him in a welcoming procession. You say, so I think, well, a lot of us want to, you know, we're fixated on, well, how's this going to work? You know, the clouds, well, the clouds are an image of God. Instead of thinking about what it, you know, it, it, the particulars, maybe what we're just, the, the rightful king is coming back to his domain, and those who are his are going out to welcome the king. The royal imagery. Jesus is coming again visibly and authoritatively. Nobody's going to miss it. The king's coming back to consummate what is rightfully his. Point number one. Secondly, you'll see we'll all be together with Jesus. Now, he uses a euphemism for death, doesn't he? Those who are asleep. Say, why does he go for asleep? Because sleepers awake. Say, when we go to sleep, we're not afraid. Tonight, as we go to sleep, we won't be afraid. Why? Because you say sleep, those who are asleep, they wake up again. So what he's saying to these Thessalonians, remember, when a Christian dies, they're asleep, and they're going to be woken up again. Now, this word has been misused, if I may just say a quick word. Um, where we're likely to encounter it in the 21st century is if you have a friend who's a Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventism 
really latches on to 1 Thessalonians 4 at the expense of everything else written about the, the end. And what they say, well, when we die, we're in an unconscious state, what they call soul sleep. So you go and it is, it is an unconscious state. You're not immediately with Jesus. You're waiting for the resurrection. The problem with that view, why we do not view soul sleep, is because all the other parts of the, of the Bible testify that when we die, the moment, that, again, that brain activity stops, that our personalities, our souls, go to be with Jesus. The second reading that I read, Philippians, what's Paul say? Better by far to be with Jesus. When I die, I'm going to be with him. 2 Corinthians 5.8, how much better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Even our passage, have a close reading of verse 14. When Jesus comes... God's going to bring the deceased with him. That those who have died are with Jesus now. So asleep is a euphemism in our passage to show the temporary, right, the temporary nature of where the Christian dead are. That when we die, if we're in Jesus, we go to be with him and we wait until he'll come again. And at that moment when Jesus comes, our bodies right, will be resurrected and reunited with our souls on the same pattern of Jesus's resurrected body. That's uh, the way it's going to happen. Furthermore, what about those who are alive? You know, this is why they're writing to say, well, somehow have those who've already died, are, are, they, gonna, are, are they in a worse position? No, actually, they're going to go first, and then those of us who are here say, we're going to join them as well. Notice that again, verse, verses 14, 15, right? That those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, that they're going to be raised, they're going to be reunited with their souls, and then those of us who are here, we're going to be caught up so that all of us can be together. And for the first time, think of it, so the first time, the whole church is going to be together. So you have loved one that you lost. So it's been a long time. So it'll be a great day to see your loved ones again. I was struck by, I think about two weeks ago, somebody said to me, you know, we have 24 widows in our congregation. 24 widows. Some have been widows a long time. I said, that's going to be a great day. For those of us interested in the, the history of the church, you know, it's going to be a, like, look at that, that's Bonhoeffer over there, you know. It's going to be a great day. A great reunion of the saints. I, I get moved every time. Like sometimes I'll be watching a football game and the dad had been in Afghanistan for 13 months, you know, and the boy's out on the field and the dad comes back. Say, it's going to be like that, but the church will be together for the first time. That's the point. Jesus is going to come. All those who are dead in Christ will raise at his voice, right? Reunited on a pattern of his body. Those of us who are still here will join them and the whole church will be together. Now you're thinking, this is very fanciful. Uh, how do you know? Notice where Paul anchors it, verse 14. It's, it's actually a, a, a logic, it's a syllogism. It, it's a logically tight point. What he says is, we, we all know Jesus died and he was raised. It, it's actually a very simple... You all know Jesus lived and died and was raised. Therefore, all those in Jesus, you're going to die and you too will be raised. It's a logically tight position. It's not anchored in what we do or my achievements or how many times that I... But what matters is whether I've said yes to Jesus that I'm found in him and because of what God demonstrated in his son in history, so too we have this promise anchored in real things, not the words of a preacher. The passion of Jesus, the completed work of him is the guarantee. 
of the promise that there is a life to come and a reunion. Now, some of us, you've heard this word, a lot of young people are deconstructing. Have you heard that? They're deconstructing their faith. In other words, they're looking out and they're saying, you know, all the church getting involved in politics and all these abuse scandals and all these pastors that love themselves and I'm deconstructing, I'm breaking down my faith. And I just say, well, anytime you think of deconstruction, just think deconstructed anything doesn't, doesn't do us any good. A deconstructed car doesn't work. So to just purely deconstruct any views, I believe in deconstruction insofar as you get to see the pieces of why we think the way we do. That's fair enough. But if it's not, then reconstruct it into something that's meaningful. What's the point at all? And so for those in our lives, you say maybe there's a young person and they're deconstructing their faith. You drive, you drive at something like verse 14. What do you think of Jesus? I recently heard a guy said, yeah, I was deconstructing, and I kept coming back. So you come back to the man who walked in Galilee. What do you think of him? What do you think of his claims? Is this true? And the church believes that it does, anchored in the real events of Jesus. So two moves. Jesus is going to come again, visibly, authoritatively, that all those who are in Jesus, who've said yes to him, will be together again, and that's a very good thing. Lastly, you'll notice that this, this passage is meant to encourage the faithful. Encourage. Look at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's not like, oh man, the end and death, and no, this is morbid, and I'm afraid. We can encourage each other because we'll, again, be reunited with Jesus. Have a look again, verse 13. You notice he'll drive this line between the way those who don't know the Lord would approach death. You see, we don't grieve as others do, that there's such a thing as others. You say you face it, you die, and there's no God in the picture. This is very bleak indeed, and the grieving is overwhelming. He says, no, we, we grieve, but we do so with hope. Very important phrase. Christians grieve the loss of those who've gone before us. It's a terribly sad thing. It is the consequence of the fall. Sometimes there are celebration of life services that are so much celebration. I'm like, you know, it is okay to call this what it is. It's a very sad day. So that's what we do. We say, this is sad. I really miss my loved one. This is a, a terrible tragedy. But because of the completed work of Jesus, I'm able to have an eye towards hope, which is not just wishful thinking, but rather anchored in what Jesus did for us. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a pastor about 100 years ago, he lost his wife rather young, and he had a small daughter, you know, maybe 10 or something like that. And uh, she's in the backseat of the car. He's driving, and she's saying, you know, Dad, uh, how to tell me about where Mom is, you know, what happened to Mom? It was a bright, sunny day. The sun's glaring down into the car, and Barnhouse is trying to gather his thoughts. And at that moment, a very large truck drove right past them, and cast a dark shadow on the car. And Barnhouse said, did you see that truck? What do you think? Would you rather be hit by the truck or hit by its shadow? And the girl laughed and she said, well, to be hit by a shadow because that doesn't hurt at all. He said, that's right. Your mom, because she was a Christian, she wasn't knocked over with death. She was just covered with the shadow of death, that it's temporary, sleepers awake. And so it is for the Christian. We grieve. The parting is sad. The truth of the matter is those of us who are here have more ministry to do. And because of this great truth that we need not fear death. You say a great mark of a Christian, Philippians 1, right? To face death with courage, to not be afraid. How can I know that? Because I know, I know from the one who's been there and back of what it is and I don't need to be afraid. 
I hope that's true for you, Christian. You've been a Christian a long time. Maybe you're still a little afraid of death. You say, revisit your theology to say, am I operating on a works-oriented theology? No, the completed work of Jesus, I rest in him. I can't live beyond the days that he's ordained for me, and I'm in Jesus secure, and I have great hope in that. I pray that's the case for you. Others, you are afraid of death, and you're not a Christian. Say, it is scary if because you're playing the guessing game. Well, I like to think of my afterlife as this, or I'm, I'm banking on oblivion. You don't need to do that. God in his kindness, today, God in his kindness has you here to read this passage, to hear God speaking to you. Say, come to Jesus, repent of your sins, turn to him so you can be right with God, be put on mission, and need not be afraid even of the darkness and the death that we will all experience, right? So church family, we eagerly anticipate Christ's coming. That if you're in Christ, there is, as the great hymn says, no fear in death. We'll be reunited with one another, reunited under the rightful king, and he will make all things right. Let's pray and sing our final, final hymn. Father, we do thank you for speaking into this great human question. Help us to see it's not a religious question, it is a human question. What happens when we die? Where are we going to go? Do I have to be afraid? You say you've answered that for us. That when we die, we go to be with Jesus if we've surrendered to him. That he will come again, reuniting all the believers in a blessed reunion, and that we can speak about this as an encouragement to one another. So Lord, help those of us who are Christians to rehearse this truth over and over again of what it means to die in Christ. And Lord, for anyone who is here today who doesn't know Jesus as their personal savior, I pray that you would nudge their heart by your spirit, give them a new heart to say, you know what, I, I just, uh, it's been my own pride, I've been plowing through, and God in your kindness by tarrying 2,000 years have given me a chance to respond. May that be the case. So Lord, build us up in this. May this be an encouragement to us. Maranatha, we pray. Come Lord Jesus, amen.